1: His praises, we also confess our sins to Him. Daniel chapter 4 is our call to confession this morning. Uh, Intriguing story of King Nebuchadnezzar, beginning at verse 29 of Daniel 4. At the end of 12 months, Nebuchadnezzar was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power? Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, till his hair grew as long as eagles' feathers, and his nails were like birds' claws. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High, and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation thus far the reading of God's Word Nebuchadnezzar had to learn that God was God and he was not and every one of us has to learn that lesson in life we think we know it and we probably do in our brains but our will must bend to his we think we will say your will be done but when we don't get what we want what we think we need We often go sideways instead of trusting God. It reminds me of our political discourse back maybe a decade ago when President Obama spoke of small businesses and said, you didn't build that. And he meant that you needed help from the community or for the state because that was the, the God of his life system. And all the conservatives rose up and reacting to the left instead of being biblical, gave the Nebuchadnezzar response. Oh, yes, we did. By our own effort and by our work, we built what we've got. Forgetting that the Bible says that, the God, that God gives us the power to get wealth or to get anywhere in life. God has called us to rule well what he gives us for a time. But all dominion is his. All the cosmos is his kingdom. And when God decides to reduce or to change our lot, it can be a hard providence. But he gave it to us to steward. And when he gives us more, we can complain of the extra work to manage it. There are many ways that we try to be God instead of submitting to him. So we're called like Nebuchadnezzar to learn this lesson quickly so he doesn't have to teach us the hard way. Recently, I'm beginning a new sermon series, uh, and it's a series on uh, the most important things to believe about uh, in Christianity. So, I'm taking as the text today uh, Deuteronomy 6, verses uh, 4 and 5, but obviously, this will be a more topical message. I'm talking about God, and every now and then, my kids will ask me at home, what, uh, <clears throat> What's the sermon about this week, Dad? And sometimes they'll just joke and say, God. Yeah. This time it's literally true. That, that is the sermon. So let's turn to Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 and 5. Here again, God's infallible word. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. The grass withers, the flower fades, this word of God stands forever forever. And God's people said, Amen. Amen. So what are the most important things to believe? Uh, Over the centuries, theologians have distilled seven areas. And I listed those in the bulletin. You'll find that near the Apostles' Creed, I think. And we'll get to each of those in turn, probably, hopefully, Lord willing, in the next seven weeks. Uh, You can think of it kind of like an Encyclopedia Britannica. Right? which meant to tell you everything there was to know about the world. Well, this isn't so much everything, but it is the most important things. This list covers everything important about Christianity. So that's the idea. The first one, of course, God. The theme here is God is there. and He exists, and He has told us who He is, and we are bound to Him as His creatures. Uh, so you, you see the outline in the in the uh, bulletin. Four things we'll go through here. One is how we know God. Two, what God is like. and we'll look at the Trinity, and last, uh, the God of Covenant. And of course, I I do this all the time, and this is a mega example of it. I've bitten off way more than I can chew here, right? You could easily do a sermon series on each of these. So we'll we'll move pretty quickly through, and feel free to ask later about anything I'm missing. Uh, John Calvin, when he starts off his Institutes of the Christian Religion, he says something like this, I'll paraphrase. Anything we are going to know about ourselves has to start with knowing God, uh, because God made us. And that's an important truth. That's why we begin with God when we start talking about uh, n- uh, knowledge at all. Uh, there's a great illustration of this. I'm a Trekkie, so sometimes I come out with Star Trek illustrations. My apologies in advance. Uh, the android Data, if you remember him, he was always on this constant discovery to, to, to know himself and to be more human, right? And halfway through that series, there's this interesting thing where they bring in his father the human who made him, who put the android together, and he meets him. And it opens up whole new vistas for data, knowing who he is. His father tells him what he had meant for him, for how he wanted him to live and to be. That's kind of the picture that we ought to have of ourselves. We meet our creator, and he tells us, this is what I meant for you. So knowing God is stop number one in understanding the world, Uh, the meaning of life, and the the intent of our own personal lives. So first, how to know God. Uh, There's two things here, uh, and we call it general and special revelation, right? General revelation, or natural, right? Uh, Creation. We'll look at this uh, next time, so I'm not going to spend too much time on it now. Psalm 19, when we were camping the last few days, we thought of the heavens declaring the glory of God, right? The, The creation tells us something about God. And we can know enough about God from that, that we are guilty for rejecting Him. Romans 1 says that. What can be known about God is plain to them, verse 21, because God has shown it to them. For, that was verse 19, sorry, verse 20. For His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. That's Romans 1. So we can know some things about God, enough uh, that uh, we can't claim to be innocent, uh, but we are under judgment for rejecting him. So that's one way to know God, creation. Part of that creation is our minds, our thoughts. Uh, And again, when we look at the world around us, look at ourselves, uh, we come to some sort of understanding that, that we were created Uh, There's some rational proofs for God that uh, have been developed through the the centuries uh, in in philosophy uh, and in theology. I want to run through those really quickly. This is going to be, again, you could do a sermon on each one of these. But one of them was from Anselm, and he used the chain of being idea. Certain beings are greater or more perfect than others, right? If you think of a slug, then you think of a cat, then you think of a lion, when you think of a man, each of those is really greater, more complex than the other. Well, something greater than man must exist because man is obviously not perfect. But so what is that? That's one uh, rational proof for God. Uh, another, another one is that uh, everything that exists in the world comes from somewhere, right? The, the idea of the greatest cause. What's at the top? What, what made all this? It can't be an infinite loop. There must be some kind of unmoved mover. That's number two. Number three is the argument from design. You've probably heard this one. If you walk along the beach and you come across a watch in the sand, you wonder who left it there. That wasn't the beach. Didn't make that. Uh, it, or if you're hacking through a jungle and you come across an immaculately trimmed garden hedge and a mansion, you wonder who did that. That's the whole universe. We look at everything and we think, somebody must have made this. Who put this all here? That's the argument from design, number three. Number four is the moral argument, and that's that we have this sense of justice and morality, right? We know instinctively that no one should just go and shoot up a school. We know that no one should just hijack a car. Well, where did that sense come from? if not from a creator who is moral and who will do justice. That's the moral argument. And the last one is just the idea that pretty much every culture in the history of man has had a sense of the divine, a sense of the transcendent. Where does that come from if we're just globs of material goo? So those are some rational proofs, and they can help, but they're not often, they're not convincing to the skeptic, and Christians ought not to rely too much on just rational argument like that either. We need Scripture to know God better, to know God savingly. So uh, just a little bit on Scripture, I wish I could spend more time on that today, but this this is the key to how we know God. Right? Deuteronomy 8 says, we don't live by bread alone, we live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And Jesus quotes that uh, to Satan as he quotes Scripture. The idea is that this word, the Bible, is are those words that proceed from God's mouth. All Scripture is God-breathed. 2 Timothy 3.16 says. So it, the point is, and Scripture usually assumes this it, in, in these few instances, he tells us what it, what it is, but it, Scripture assumes this is God talking. The, the, these are the words God has given to us to read, to understand, to take in. If, if God is talking, he is revealing himself, his mind, his will. This is what you do when you talk with your friend or your spouse, when you say something you want them to know or hear or to, to get uh, about what you're thinking. It's very basic communication, right? This is way more important than us trying to think our way to God. God has given us his words. So uh, that's that's critical. I could spend a lot of time on that, but that in the 1800s, we're studying this in the Men's Study. That that's what philosophers basically started doing, and that's where uh, Marx and Hegel and, and Nietzsche and all these guys went crazy wrong. Is they started thinking we can't uh, we can't know God. All the religion that we see around us is just man making up thoughts about God. Well, who cares about that? And they threw it and they threw it out largely, uh, instead of realizing accepting revelation from God. So, uh, this is way more important, Scripture. Uh, Our our thoughts are needed, but we can't think our way to God. We need Scripture, uh, and and then our mind applied to Scripture to take in what God says. I like what Paul says on Mars Hill in Acts 17. He says their, their philosophers were groping in the dark to find their way to God. It's like they're in a dark room trying to feel around. That's, that's what the Greek philosophers had in their thoughts. But in the Bible, God turned on the lights. And there was Jesus in the flesh. And God spoke that this was his son. And he raised him from the dead to prove it. That's how we know God. So what does the Bible say about God then? What is he like? That's number two in our uh, journey here. Uh, What is God like? Uh, The official term for this is attributes. I'm going to stay away from most of the big words. We can talk about those later if you'd like. Uh, But uh, Stephen Charnock, an old Puritan, wrote an excellent book, if you want to do a deep dive on this, called The Existence and the Attributes of God. Uh, What is God like? Well, there's kind of two categories. Uh, There are a lot of ways in which we cannot be like God at all. And then there are some ways in which we can be like God in limited ways, right? So let's start with the first one. Here's three things, three ways in which we cannot be like God at all. One is self-existence. God, is, God exists of himself, right? The, the very name Yahweh comes from the root word of to be. And God says, tells Moses his name, and then he says, I am who I am. Or Jesus in John 5.25 says, The Father has life in himself. That's God being self-existent. So that's one way, uh, one, th- one thing, uh, attribute of God, what he's like. And we can't be like that. We're, we're the opposite. We, we, we exist in dependence on God. Uh, the second way is Simplicity. Yeah, this is one that we don't think about too often. There, there's a lot we could say here. The idea of God as being simple is not that he's um, slow of brain. We usually think of that, right? No. It's that there are no parts to God. No parts to God. That usually when we think of the Trinity, we commit the error of partialism, we call it. We, we tend to think because it's a mystery, we can't comprehend it so well. But we think of the Trinity as three parts of God. But that's not the case. God is one. It's it's not that God is part love and part justice, or or even worse, that he's sometimes justice and sometimes love. No, they aren't at odds. God's purpose, God's will, God's being, his passion even, we'll talk about that in a second, is always singular, always the same. So uh, I think it's the Westminster Confession that says God is without parts or passions. Uh, that's, that's God's simplicity. The passion part is interesting, just an aside there. Uh, when Westminster says that, it means uh, changeable emotions, right? Uh, I tend to think, and this is a, in a, this is a controversy that people discuss, so take this one as my opinion. I tend to think God does have passion. It's just that it never changes. Uh, he is always angry with the wicked, as we talked about last week in Psalm 7, or indignant at the wicked. He's always merciful to his people. He's always seeking our sanctification. The Bible speaks often about God uh, uh, desiring, longing for his people, for example. Uh, so I tend to think that he has passion in that way, right? But it, it's, it's unchanging. And that leads to the third thing I wanted to say about how, what God's like, and that's immutable. God doesn't change, we do were inherently changeable and changing. But when the Bible says God was sorry that he made mankind, for example, at the time of the flood, it isn't that God's purpose changed, it's just that he acts differently in history, right, to forward his unchanging plan. He always meant for things to fall apart from the flood to Babel, and then to call Abraham and so on. I think a good example of that is, think of a parent uh, who might be more severe with a child at one point and, and very tender and merciful to the same child at another time. But the parent has the same purpose in mind for that child all the time. That's something of what we're talking about here. Uh, Malachi 4.6 is a good text there. I do not change, God says, therefore you are not consumed. <laughs> and that, that, that kind of perks us up. Like, uh, it's a good thing God is immutable in his mercy. It, it, sometimes we get, we get the works righteousness idea going, that if we're too bad, too sinful, then God will consume us. No, God does not change. He has his plan. Not that he's never going to consume anyone, notice, and that's not the point. The point is he has his intention for each person, for his whole creation. So, self-existence simplicity, immutability, we're not going to be like God in these ways ever, right? When we get to that new heavens and the new earth, and the Bible says we will be like him, it doesn't mean in these ways. We're always going to be body and soul, made up of parts. We're always going to be changing in some way. So that's, we can't be like God in those ways. Here are a few ways that we can be like God. Uh, God is a spirit, we read at the beginning of the worship service. We too are spirit. We're spiritual beings, just like God is. That's why we can have communion and fellowship with God. It's spirit to spirit that's going on there. Uh, Another one, God is good, right? We sometimes say when we're talking about somebody, he's a good man, we might say. We know he isn't perfectly good. And Jesus says that in the text we read, no one is good but God alone, right? Jesus is pointing us there to the fact that only God is perfectly good. But we can share in that in a certain degree when someone is a good man, for example. Uh, holiness is another one. We're just saying holy, holy, holy. Uh, holiness is all about being set apart from evil uh, and, uh, and being pure, And we can do that to a degree, or at least we can resolve to. Uh, So goodness, holiness, uh, mercy is another one. We can be forgiving and gracious. Truthful, we can tell the truth just as God, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So those are some ways that we can be like God, uh, some attributes of God. One thing to keep in mind is in 2 Peter 1 uh, Peter makes the, the the striking statement that we are partakers of the divine nature, and and that gets a lot of controversy. Like what? So we're going to become divine? Is that what that means? No. I think what it's talking about is that these attributes of God. We, we can be become partakers of the divine nature in the fact that at one point in the new heavens and the new earth, we will too will be perfectly good. We will be completely holy. Uh, so we will be like Him because we will see Him as He is. So th- that's what God is like to a degree. One part of that, of course, is the Trinity. Let's think about the Trinity a minute. The, uh, the coloring page that I, that I had us print was the wrong one. So you, you don't have the chart that I wanted you to have in front of you. But that's okay. You've got a nice Trinity knot there. But... Um, uh, Anyway, that's probably better because the picture has one or two things wrong with it, right? Any picture you try to take or analogy you try to make of the Trinity is going to be wrong in some way. So maybe better we didn't have it anyway. But we have in the creed that I believe in God the Father Almighty, in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, and in the Holy Spirit, Right? So what the picture that I had gets right is it, 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 there's, there's lines of is and is not, right? The Father is God. The Son is God. The Spirit is God. That's one thing we want to claim, is that each of the three persons is God. We also want to say the Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Spirit. The, the three persons aren't identical. And the third thing we want to say is there is one God. God. And that's the mystery. How do you put those three things together in our minds? That's very difficult. But that's uh, pretty much all I'll say about the Trinity. If you keep talking too long, you make some mistake usually. So the Trinity is uh, a, a great truth. We, we do want to uh, continue maintaining the personality of the Spirit, uh, the full deity of, of uh, the Son, and the fact that God the Father uh, is a creator, the one who, who speaks, the, 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 the Son is the one who is spoken. He's the word through which all things are made, the Spirit hovering over the waters. Uh, so uh, that's the Trinity. Uh, last thing I'll say today is the binding of God or the, the covenant of God. I have that binding um, phrase in there. There's a book called by Peter Lilback, who's a president of a seminary out east. Very good uh, on, uh, on the idea that God has bound himself right? The, the Psalms often talk about binding the sacrifice to the altar. And, and that's essentially what God has done in relationship to us. He's bound himself onto the altar. He did that in Christ. So God is a covenant-keeping God. A lot of this can get abstract. I had about 500 pages I could have read in my systematic theology books on, on this first article of God, right? A lot of it's really abstract, but we have to keep in mind that God is a covenant-keeping God. Psalm 136, what we read in the opening litany, his steadfast love endures forever. And we say it over and over and over, that psalm does. Steadfast love, is, a, is a, the Hebrew is hesed. It's a, it's, a, it's a word that means um, loyalty. It, it, it's, it's, um, it assumes relationship. That God is a God of Relationship. And that's partly because of the Trinity. That's inherent to who God is. And so when God makes a world, there's going to be a relationship there. It's, it's very different than the, the God of uh, Islam, of Allah, right? That's, that's a monad, a singular God who is alone. And he makes a, a world, supposedly. And then you think about the relationship very differently. It's, it's more obedience, and that's about it. There's more to it in the Christian concept. God is uh, making and keeping covenant with us. Think of the rainbow, right? We've just been through Pride Month, right? You see the rainbows everywhere. Well, God created the rainbow, and, he, and his original intent, he, he tells Noah, is I will remember my covenant with you. It's not, it's not even for us to remember first. God says, I'm putting that rainbow there so that you know that I am remembering you. God is a covenant-keeping God. Uh, now, our, our sermon text, Deuteronomy 6, verse 5, also gets at this. Uh, you have the great Shema, right? Tells us who God is. The hero Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one, right? There's one God. And then the very next verse, the greatest commandment, according to Jesus. Love the Lord your God. It's the inverse of what we're talking about. God has set his love on you, and he says throughout Scripture, especially in the Old Testament, you will be my people, I will be your God. Right? That's God's intention to be in covenant with his people, his creation. So uh, when we think about this, we also want to think, and I'll conclude with this uh, uh, area, uh, of, of the covenant within God before time. We often uh, talk about this, theologians do. Uh, what is it that God intended for his creation before he made it? Well, the Father, it, this, this is, you have to use your imagination a bit here, cons- con- consider before the world was, the Father, Son, and the Spirit in perfect harmony, and the Father says to the Son and to the Spirit, we are going to create a world and people made in our image to enjoy our fellowship And those people are going to rebel against us. But we will redeem it. And son, you will go become one of our creatures, live humbly as they should have, and then die as a sacrifice to satisfy our justice so that they can be with us again. And the son will need the Spirit's help to do this. And then the Spirit will need to be with the church to help them until Christ returns. That's the plan. And the son says, yes. And the spirit says, yes. This is the plan. That's, a, that's the covenant that God makes within himself for us. Sometimes called the covenant of redemption. So the promises that the father gives to the son, that there are promises that go with this, right? Uh, and this is a pact made in eternity. Uh, this is something that uh, Charles Hodge, uh, he, he's a... a theologian from the 1800s. He, he um, was rather wordy, as most theologians are. He, he gave uh, eight promises, and I boiled them down to three. And I, I went alliteration crazy here, too, so I, sorry about that. But there's three, three basic promises that the Father gives uh, here to the Son, to the Spirit. Uh, the first is the end goal. The second is the excellent gift. The third is the exalting glory. Okay, the, the first promise is the promise of the end goal. God is going to form a purified church for His Son. I'm going to give you a bride. That's the basic picture. All the Father gives to the Son will come to Him, and none will be lost. John chapter 6. Multitudes will partake of Christ's redemption and, and be part of His kingdom. This is Psalm 2, right? I'm going to give you the nations as an inheritance. That's the promise. And this is something that we believe God promised the Son before the world was even here. And that when Jesus was in travail of his soul, he would be satisfied. That's Isaiah 53. So when, he go, when Jesus, when you go to the cross you're going to be satisfied uh, by that sacrifice, by that work. That's the end goal. Uh, Second is the excellent gift. Uh, The gift, the Father promises the Son to receive the Spirit without measure. And he'll have that Spirit uh, as he ministers on earth, as he's tempted in in the desert, as he's on the cross. The Spirit will help him to be faithful. And the Son would also have the Spirit to send to whom He willed, right? The Father gives the Son the Spirit to, to, to pour out on the church. And the Spirit would uh, always be there uh, for the Son. That's the excellent gift. The last one is the exalting glory, that the Father will deliver the Son from death and exalt Him to His right hand, right? He, this is Philippians 2. He humbles himself to the point of death, and so God exalts him to his right hand, to the name above every name, the exalting glory. So that's the, there's this covenant within God uh, for us. This is God's intent for his people. Uh, this was promised and planned from before time began. Uh, Ephesians 1 uh, talks about that. From before the foundation of the world, God predestined us. So, that's who God is. Now, in a way, we've already moved on from who God is to what he does. We've started talking about that. And we'll have more on that next week in creation from Psalm 8. For now, just two points of application quickly. Number one is read your Bibles. Read your Bibles. God speaks to you with a megaphone there. You'll see him in creation as well, but it's, it's not as clear. The voice isn't as, as cl- the message isn't as distinct There is a message there. uh, Pick that up as well. But read your Bibles and listen up. God is literally speaking to you in that book. And second, uh, just from this last covenant keeping point, the God who is there has bound himself to you. And you are bound to him. Uh, Because God made you, because he has redeemed you in Christ at the cross, you literally owe him your life. Uh, the reason you are here is because you were put here by God. And that's, uh, that's the meaning of life. You, we are in covenant with our Creator. So uh, think of that uh, when you read your Bibles. It's not just an intellectual message. It's, it's not an instruction manual uh, on how to build uh, 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 anything. It, it's, it's, um, it's the working out of a relationship with our Creator. I'll stop there. God is, God is there. He's told us who He is, and we're bound to Him as His creatures. So consider God on this Lord's Day today, and we'll consider creation uh, in Psalm 8 next week. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for uh, who You are and for revealing that to us. We thank You that You are a, a God of steadfast love, a God who does not change, Lord, we can take such comfort in this, for you are our rock, our fortress, a refuge that we can run to. Lord, you are the comforter, you are the redeemer, you are the father. And so we come before you week after week in this place, and we gather in prayer together as families, as individuals, day by day. And Lord, we ask that you would keep us steadfast in your word and that you would have us pay attention to our relationship with you. Just as we're called in families uh, to be faithful parents, uh, faithful spouses, to have communication with one another. Uh, Lord, uh, keep our relationship with you vibrant, uh, alive, prospering, and flourishing. We pray all this in the name of Christ. And we. I pray as God says this to Israel, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. We celebrate the Eucharist here every week because God is renewing his covenant with us. This isn't just a mental exercise where we remember him and think about him in our brains. Think of every meal that a mother prepares for her family. Every meal is her saying, I am yours and you are mine. When God sets this table, it's a sign of assurance saying, I am your God, you are my people. So come, for all things are now ready.